Welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I go on and on about things I think are interesting and you hopefully enjoy them too. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. This week will be the third and last part of the Mythology of the British Isles series that we've been working on. It's been a wild ride and I'd like to just reiterate that I have learned so much. One thing I especially love about mythology is how the stories reflect the everyday experiences and customs of a land and its people and Every culture has their own mythology, but the similarities and differences can provide such a fascinating insight into what their lives must have been like. I'm certain I'll do more mythology episodes in the future. I still plan on doing Japan soon, and there are about four other mythology-related ideas on my list so far. But today, let's focus on the British Isles. We've talked a lot about Irish mythology. Again, the reason there's so much more in that arena is that the whole you know, priests, they made it such a good job transcribing so many oral myths. Um, but now it's time to look elsewhere. I'd like to tell you today a small amount about Scots, Welsh, and British mythology and legends. The stories are cool and a little long, so what do you say we get going? And why does it always seem like I'm saying that every podcast? Okay, well, teach me something. First... First, let's talk for just a minute about the ancient Scots. Perfect. Ancient Scotland was inhabited by a people that were called Picti by the Romans. Pict comes from the Latin pictor, meaning painter. It was thought, due to the writings from Romans and other contemporaries, that they tattooed or painted large parts of their body for battle or ritual, ceremony, something like that. But archaeological finds haven't really confirmed the presence of tattoos. So now the prevalent theory is is the painting. Mm. Um, or the Romans were just going on about something that we have no idea. <laughs> Possible. They spoke a dialect of Celtic that was similar to the Britonic language spoken by the people of Britain to the south. Um, there's these really large monumental stones found with beautifully carved symbols and writings that are attributed to the Picts. Um, and the written inscriptions on the stones have been mostly translated, but not the symbols. So far, the symbols have defied all attempt at translation, um, but it's not due to a lack of trying. Very few written records have survived from the Picts themselves, but archaeology gives some impression of the society of the Picts. As well, Pictish history since the late 6th century is quite well described in a variety of historical sources, and the name Picti has been found in written records dating from the 3rd to 10th century CE, so that's kind of the times that they were um, pretty active. Got it. Seems like the society wasn't very different than um, most of the other cultures around them at this point. They engaged in farming and piracy. And they raided, oh. <laughs> they raided spots along the coast of Britain. Um, they hunted with dogs and falcons. And I wanted to add this detail I found because um, it's pertinent to what we discussed in the last two episodes. Irish sources tell us that the elites in ancient Irish society engaged in competitive cattle breeding for size. Who could breed the biggest cows? Probably bulls, actually. So this kind of explains all the I'm stealing your cows myths and why cows were apparently worth going to war over. Anyways, to bring that back to this week, the writings have been found um, that indicate that this occurs in Pictland. Pictland? Also, 
the competitive cattle breeding thing. So that was cool. Um, there are, of course, other small tribes and peoples in ancient Scotland, but at this time, the Picts are the most powerful. Around 500 CE, there was a mass migration of Irish Celts from the Ulster province in Ireland to the Western Highlands in Scotland. And those people called themselves the Scots. They brought with them the Irish mythology of the Ulster and Finian cycles, which is why versions of those stories can be found in the Scots Gaelic mythology as well. Sure, probably slightly altered to fit the, definitely the region. Definitely altered, but definitely, it's like a very good comparison would yeah. be how the Romans took Greek stories, changed yeah. the names, kept most of them the same. Correct. Got it. Um, and the Picts, though, seem to have continued their dominance over the Scots until about the mid-800s, but... By the 900s, their written history stops referring to the Picts as a separate people at all. So um, they kind of were assimilated. It doesn't speak of anything being conquered or any huge battles. It just seems like a gradual assimilation sure. in that time. Uh, in the 800s CE, Vikings, of course, start visiting the British Isles. They raid. They conquer territory. Visiting, <laughs> in air quotes. They went on holiday. What do you want? Yeah, sure. All these factors, though, and all these people all influenced... What became the Scottish people and the Scottish mythology? So there's really quite a heavy Celtic influence, Christian, Norse, and other Germanic and, and pagan contributions, uh, which I find really cool. So the story I'm going to tell you today comes from the Orcadian branch of Scottish mythology. Um, Orkneys and Archipelago in the Northern Isles of Scotland. Am I saying that right? Is it Archipelago? Archipelago sounds right. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, Orkneys and Archipelago. And I'm choosing this story because it's really easy to see the influence of a lot of mythologies. Uh, basically, Norse is what you're going to most hear. But there's also some Greek, um, I'll say influence, that I'll tell you about at the end, which is pretty cool. Tale number one, Assy Patel and the Mester Stoorworm. In Orkney lore, there were creatures known as Stoorworms, which were an evil race of sea monsters. But there was one Stoorworm, the Mester Stoorworm, that was unlike any other. He was good or more evil? Oh, well, the second one, the latter. Okay. You see, Mester means master. And the Mester Stoorworm was the father of them all. It was believed he had been hatched into life by a malignant spirit and was placed in the depths of the sea, destined to become one of the nine curses that plagued humanity. Creepy, right? Mm -hmm. He had grown so big that he wrapped all the way around the world. Yeah. Every time he moved, he would cause earthquakes and tidal waves, and his gigantic forked tongue could sweep whole cities into the sea. At a whim, the master stewardworm could crush even the largest castle and suck everything inside of it into his gaping maw. He crushed any ship that passed by him as if it were nothing more than a pesky fly, and his fetid breath was poisonous to any living thing. So, okay, pretty scary. Yeah. Um, that, was, that was the description and the translation of the master stewardworm, and uh, sounds like a pretty epic bad guy. For our hero to overcome. Also seems to have a, a pretty uh, intense parallel to 
Norse mythology and the worm that surrounds the world there. Or snake? You're getting Dragon? You're, Sorry. You're, you're getting... I'll just retract that will, until you bring it up. I will talk about it at the end of the story. And until then... Mm-hmm. Zip it? Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> okay. No, I don't want you to zip it. You're good at the color commentary. Just, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stop. <laughs> just wait for that ahead, particular basically. thing. Yeah. So, we begin our story as something awful happens. The Mester Storeworm lays his head among the islands of what is now northern Scotland... And then it starts to yawn. Hmm. Seems like a bad thing. This was this was a particularly bad sign, is the next line in my outline. Good, good, good. <laughs> you see, you see, when the master store worm yawns, it doesn't mean he's tired. It means he's hungry. Hmm. And he expects the people of the kingdom to satisfy his voracious appetite. Every Saturday at dawn, the store worm would wake up and yawn seven times. He would then demand a meal of seven virgins. Why virgins? Must taste the best. Well, I mean, besides the fact that it's always virgins. Yeah. Always. Every story, it's always virgins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The reason given by the translation is, and I quote, Although he was a venomous beast, he had a dainty taste. Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh Those dainty virgins just taste better. Yeah. The people of this land soon grow tired of sacrificing their daughters, watching as they're gobbled up by the cavernous jaws of the monster. They seek the counsel of an old wizard, who tells the king that the stewer worm has grown old. He's traveled the world and eaten exotic folks from exotic lands, and he's developed quite a discerning palate in his old age. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. The wizard proceeds to tell the king that if he were to feed his own daughter to the worm... It would trouble them no more. This is, needless to say, very unwelcome news. The princess, Chim the Lovely, is the king's only daughter, and he of course loves her immensely. But nevertheless, his duty to his kingdom is clear. He begrudgingly agrees to the plan in order to save his people. Chim the Lovely, as her name suggests, is the most beautiful maiden in the land, And a descendant of the great Odin. Does that mean that he's a descendant of Odin as well? Surely is. It must be. Surely is. She will surely satisfy the Mester Storeworm's luxurious tastes. I would think so. But, the king interjects, I ask of you just one indulgence. Give me three weeks to find a hero. One who will slay the mighty Storeworm and save my precious daughter. If I cannot... Then I will offer her as the ultimate sacrifice. So how many weeks have they gone before this being a, a potential solution to the situation? Oh, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, combined with the fact that different sources have told me different amounts of time. One source said 12 weeks. They waited 12 weeks, which is, you know, 12 times 7 number of virgins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 84. 84. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying. It's hard to do that in my head while I'm looking oh, at okay. my screen and trying to keep the story going. I didn't calculate that ahead of time. This is Got a, it. a thought that popped into my head. Mm-hmm. 10 weeks, one source said. Nine weeks. I was going with three weeks because it moves the story along a little faster. Okay. The king announces the prize for this impossible quest. Any man who can slay the stewer worm will be given the kingdom and his daughter's hand in marriage. Seems reasonable, actually that she's property but it's better than being eaten by a store worm right i don't know 
I haven't experienced I guess either. it depends which kind of hero shows up. Yeah. To sweeten the deal, though, even further, he also offers his sword to the successful hero. Sicker snapper. Mm, the sword the that he... The snapper. <laughs> You're going to regret that when I tell you who made this sword. Well, actually, I don't know who made it. Who gave him this sword. <laughs> okay. This is a I'm sword sure. given to him by Odin himself. He was an old whippersnapper himself. Sicker snapper from the great Odin. Okay. Okay. 36 brave knights arrive in the town, ready to take on this quest. The first 12 ride through the town, gasping in awe at the sheer size of the storeworm, and then they just keep riding. (laughs) Never dismounting their horses, making it all the way through town, and sneaking back to their homes because that thing was too big. The next 12 all faint at their first glimpse of the store worm. They're carried out of town, probably unceremoniously just dropped there. Probably. I don't know. And the last 12 would-be heroes bravely charge the store worm, and he makes a quick snack out of them all. So wait, does that mean all last of, like, the last dozen knights, were they all virgins? Well, I think he just ate them out of self-defense. Because he was angry. Or like, you know, guilt snacking, comfort snacking. snacking. But not like this was the desired gourmet food of virgins. This was just like, it's right here in front of me and I just can't stop with one. You know, I've got to eat all 12. Mm -hmm. Like a bag of chips. Sure. Yeah. Understood. So on the eve of the last day, the three weeks having all but run out, the king has had enough. Being from the line of Odin. Uh, Yes. (laughs) A brave man. The king declares he will fight the dragon himself. After all, if you want something done right, you've just got to do it yourself. Yeah. But news of this declaration spreads like wildfire. Wildfire. (laughs) Through the kingdom. And reaches the ears of a farmer and his family. This man has seven sons. Six of whom are extremely hard workers. And one, the youngest, who was really not. Okay. This lazy child couldn't be persuaded to do any farm work, nor lift a finger to help his mother cook or clean. He just spends his days lying beside the big open fire in the kitchen, not caring when he comes all covered in ash from the thick peat fire. In fact, he's called Asipatl, which means ash raker, because of the fire thing. Right. And he is the unlikely hero of our story. Okay. Patel's mother and father wondered where they had gone wrong with this boy. His brothers truly despised him. The entire family would laugh derisively when Patel told them fantastic tales and sagas he wrote in which he was the hero of incredible battles. On this evening, the one in question, the farmer is ranting and raving about the storeworm again. He's been going on nightly tirades, you see complaining that there's going to be no one left to marry his seven sons if the storeworm keeps gobbling up every available maiden. Because this, yes. is, this is the issue, right? That is a big He's issue. He's the victim. Mm-hmm. He's the victim because his four sons will have no virgins to marry. Yeah. This night is different, though. The farmer is telling his sons that the king will be fighting the monster himself. And maybe, just maybe, there will still be virgins for them to marry when it's all over. Good. Crucial. 
Upon hearing this, Assy Patel realizes he finally has the chance to be the hero as he has been in his countless stories. He slips away from the farm and sails out to sea in his little boat, carrying only a bucket containing a smoldering peat from his hearth. As he approaches the slumbering Mester Storeworm, he sees its head as big as a mountain with eyes like dark round lagoons. Which I don't really get, because if he's sleeping, his eyes should be closed. So, I don't know if you're really seeing eyes. But that's what it says. Okay. Yeah. The sun begins to rise, and the creature begins to yawn. Assipatel steers closer as it yawns a second time. With okay. each yawn, a vast tide of water is swept down the storeworm's throat. Finally, one of these waves sweeps Assipatel's tiny little boat into the gaping abyss of its mouth. Okay. Assy Paddle and his boat rush down the long throat through twisting passages and deep dark tunnels. Mile after mile he slides, the seawater gurgling around him until at last the boat hits solid ground. Assy Paddle knows he only has a short time before the storeworm yawns again, and so he sprints away faster than he's ever run before. Turning a corner, he sees the creature's liver. Isn't this just the same as being eaten? Well, yeah, but it's a valid strategy. Haven't you ever seen, like, I don't know, Men in Black? Sometimes being yeah, eaten and being inside the monster is the only way to get things done. I get it. I just... I don't know if you, you know, get it. Could, could they have just prepared the virgins with weapons for when they got eaten? They could be in a similar situation? I don't think women. Oh. That's all the explanation you need. Okay. Assy Paddle cuts a hole in the storeworm's liver and stuffs the smoldering peat inside of it. With a crackle and a sizzle, the worm's liver begins to burn and it's soon blazing like a, again, I'm quoting here. Okay. John's Miss Bonfire. Oh, Not yes. a Christmas bonfire, a John's Miss Bonfire. I was worried. I didn't know that was a thing. Did they used to? Oh, it's, it's cool. Huh. Assy Paddle runs back to his boat and he manages to clamber aboard just in time. The noxious smoke from the burning liver makes the storeworm nauseous. Gagging, the storeworm vomits, hurtling Assy Paddle over the sea and back onto the shore. Oh, good. Black smoke billows from the monster's nostrils, and in his agony, his forked tongue shoots out and catches hold of one of the horns of the moon. Don't ask me what that is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't know the moon had horns until I read this story. It is a bull. Um, yeah. I have no answers for you. But the important part is that the tongue grabs the moon, <laughs> but then drops it. Oh, no. Making a crater in the earth. The tide rushes into this rift, and it becomes the Baltic Sea. The storeworm twists and writhes in agony and flings his head up into the sky. It keeps crashing back down to earth and writhing back up again. Each time it crashes, the whole world shakes and teeth drop from its poisonous gob. The first lot of falling teeth become the Orkney Islands. The second... The Shetland Islands. Sure. Last, the remaining teeth become the Faroe Islands. Good. Um, If anyone doesn't know, this is describing the northern islands of Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. In the throes of its death, the Master Storeworm coils itself together tightly into a huge mass that becomes the country of Iceland. And they don't say it anywhere here, but I'm going to assume the moon somehow makes its way back into the sky. 
No, just the horns came off. Right. That's a possibility too, but I'm still I'm still lost on the horns and the moon. So well, either well, way, the moon's okay. Here, At the end the of the thing. story, the moon is okay. The reason that the moon looks the way it is now is because it doesn't have horns anymore. Like you don't you don't understand it because you've never seen the moon with horns because you weren't alive when born, this happened. Born too late. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. So a week later, Assy Patel and the princess marry in the royal palace, and the kingdom is able to celebrate without fear, for the terrible Mr. Stormworm is finally dead. And now on to the details that you so helpfully mentioned earlier. Good. I was just, um, you know, which, prepping us. Which is that the Mr. Stormworm was inspired by Norse mythology. It is a very, very close uh, reproduction. Of a monster known as Jormungand. Jormungandr is also an option. I'm still not sure which one is right. Sure. Um, which is called the World Serpent. Yes. Born of Loki. Yes. The Jormungandr was cast into the sea by Odin after he was warned by the Norns, whoever those are, that Loki's brood would cause him trouble. Which they do. Jormungand grew larger and larger until he encircled the earth and could take his own tail into his mouth. Mm-hmm. Also thought to be an influence on this story, either directly or indirectly through the Norse mythology, was the dragon Laidon in Greek mythology, which was a serpent-like dragon that twists around the tree in the Garden of the Hesperides and guards the golden apples, who then is slain by Hercules. Well, Heracles in Greek mythology. Um, And another interesting fact here is that in ancient mythology, the liver was thought to be the source of the spirit or life, which is why Asipatl put burning peat in his liver. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of how big this, you know, worm's liver is versus For one, one piece of burning peat. To, to, yeah. I don't know. What I'm guessing is that somehow the inside of this liver is extremely flammable because you would think the wetness of it all would just put the fire out, yeah. but that's not what happens. I'm also just thinking, like, if its eyes are the size of lagoons, then I would think that, you know... The liver's the size of, like, you know, a small sea or something like that. Well, probably. But if you're going to start injecting realism into things, mythology is the wrong route to go down. Right. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So this next story comes from Welsh mythology. Um, And I will stop right here and tell you that Welsh names are probably not generally harder than the Irish ones, but there is this specific sound that you have to make when there's two L's that I cannot master. And the the key to pronounce it says there is no equivalent in the English language. Just try to make a sound like, and then they try to describe something, but it's not great because there's no sound in the English language like this. So that being said, I am pronouncing the two L's as a sound, a th, and it's not Correct, but it's close. Okay. And I don't know what's correct. Got it. Great. So Welsh, Welsh it's hard to say Welsh, <laughs> traditions and stories are a mix of Gaelic influence from Irish, Scots, and Brythonic influence from the people of Britain. The unfortunate thing, though, is that prior to the medieval period, Welsh mythology was an entire, like, it's just oral. It was only an oral tradition. And, um, and then the, Dru- the Druids kept in and maintained the tradition. Um, and then through major invasions and outside contact in the first millennium CE, it, much of it was lost or altered. 
because there wasn't any recorded and preserved in manuscript form until at least the 900s CE. Mm-hmm. So this is after the stories probably were altered. So we're probably not getting a great original um, retelling of these. Cool anyways, though. So the story I'm going to tell you comes from a collection of unknown authorship, and it's called The Four Branches of the Mabinogi. Mabinogi? Let's go with Mabinogi. Okay. (laughs) The four ancient tales are often grouped with seven other early Welsh stories, which forms the Mabinogian. And that's the most well-known anthology of Welsh myth that we have. The Mabinogian are the earliest prose stories in British literature, actually. Uh, And they're really important influence on the King Arthur legends. These stories are compiled uh, in Middle Welsh in the 12th and 13th centuries from the earlier oral stories I was telling you about. Tale number two, Puith Rhiannon and the Prince of David. One night, King Puith of David is at a feast. He looks out a window and sees a beautiful lady on a beautiful horse. He orders a servant to ride out and ask who the lady is. But no matter how fast the servant drives his horse, he cannot catch up to the lady. The next night, she's back. The servant is once again sent to chase after her and find out her identity, but she again proves elusive. On the third night, Puith takes matters into his own hands, mounting his swiftest horse and riding after the lady. But alas, he cannot catch up to her, no matter how fast she rides. Out of sheer desperation, he calls out, Lady, for the sake of love, please stop. This does the trick. Oh, of course. She stops, turns, and approaches him. "'Twould have been much kinder to your horse for you to have asked sooner." she says coyly. I'm Rhiannon, a queen in the other world. Mm. I will be given to a man I do not want unless you come to my father, high fade the old, and claim me. If you wish to seek me as your wife, do this in one year's time. How cool is the name high fade the old? I love it. pretty good. I love it. So he's Rhiannon's dad. Okay. Puith is totally down with this request. I guess why else chase a woman down on horseback for three nights if you don't intend to marry her? It's just basic rules of engagement, right? Uh, yeah. So, he waits a year, and then he travels to High Fade's court. And he arrives in the middle of an extravagant gala. The castle's decorated, the atmosphere's jovial, and the feast is nothing short of excessive. Puith is quite embarrassed to have interrupted such an event, and he discreetly asks what joyous event is being celebrated here. Well, it's good news. No need for Puith to be embarrassed. He's finally arrived at his own wedding. Right. All he's got to do is get himself up there and marry Rhiannon on the double. Pretty easy. So clearly Puith's pretty good at going going with the flow. He proceeds with the ceremony, but it does not come to pass. One guest stops Puith and first asks him for a favor. I don't know how come in mythology people just ask for favors from total strangers all the time. Yeah. Like, all the time. And expect it to actually happen. Yeah, and and everyone else does too. Everyone else around is like, yeah, you better give that strange guy whatever he wants. 
And I mean, the, the Welsh must have had a custom to grant favors on their wedding day, like, you know, like the godfather and granting a favor yeah. on the day uh-huh. of his daughter's wedding. Yeah. It must be something like that, because Puith just says, you may have anything and everything in my power to give. What do you wish? Now I can just imagine Rhiannon kicking Puith under the table as she whispers to him, you fool, that is the man who has been seeking my hand in marriage, and now he will ask it of you. Hmm. Shoot. <laughs> yeah, that's never good. Bad. And so, not surprisingly, the man asks Puith to give him both Rhiannon and the feast they're currently enjoying. Here I am kind of like imagining a check endorsement. Sign this feast over to me at yeah. once. This will now become mine. Um, and give me your woman because women are property. Cool, cool, cool. So this charming gentleman introduces himself to Puith as Gooowl. Right, that's a tough one to say without getting one. Yeah. And he agrees to let Puith and Rhiannon take some private time to talk this over. So they decide refusal isn't an option here. It's too important to maintain Puith's honor. He's sworn to Gooowl that he would grant him any favor and he needs to follow through on that. But they do come up with a clever backup plan. Sure. Rhiannon and Puith return to the party to speak to Gooowl. It's really hard not to giggle when you say goo owl. Well, I'm just imagining him as like a very majestic owl. owl. And every time you say goo owl, I say who in my head? (laughs) I am required by my honor to give Rhiannon to you, says Kuwith. But it is not within my power to give this feast to you. This feast belongs to Rhiannon, not me. Rhiannon tells goo owl, return to the castle in exactly a year. There's going to be a feast prepared for him, and she'll be prepared as well to marry him. I'm seeing a trend here. Everything takes a whole year. I don't know. Yeah. Very elaborate party. Okay. A lot of cooking. One more year passes. Rhiannon and her servants organize another feast, and Rhiannon sits with Gual at the head table. Still not married, mind you, because at this point, a beggar approaches the couple asking if he may claim a favor from the happy husband-to-be at his wedding feast. Of course. I guess so, complains Gual, as long as it's a small one. I told you, he's, he's a real prince of a fellow, this guy. Yeah. Well, all the beggar wants is to fill a small bag with food from the feast. He's so hungry, surely Gual can see it in his heart to help a poor beggar. Gual agrees to this favor, He starts to place food into the bag, piece by piece, becoming more and more confused as to why the bag never seems to get any fuller. Plate after plate enters the bag until it becomes obvious to everyone present this bag is never going to fill up. Good. Gwell turns an accusing face towards the beggar, who is quick to tell him, don't worry, it will be full once a lord stands upon it and says enough. Gwell, who I'm going to say is a wee bit gullible, Stands on the bag. The Mm. beggar removes his disguise with a flourish and reveals himself as Puith. Oh, no way. (laughs) Shock! Ah! Yes. Right. He pushes Gual down and draws the strings on the bag closed, knotting them tightly. Puith's men start to beat the bag with sticks. And then they're stopped by Hyphade the Old. Yeah. Hyphade believes a death like this would be unjust for Gual. 
He orders Puis to let him go so long as Guel promises not to take any revenge. Finally that night, Puith marries Rhiannon. Yay! It's been a few years, but they got it done. Yep. They live together in David, very happy for three years, and then Rhiannon gives birth to a beautiful baby boy. Good. I'm just going to kind of gloss over the parts during those three years where the nobleman of David tried to replace Rhiannon as queen because she hasn't yet given David an heir. To, to, to his credit, Puith refuses to even entertain this idea. But it sucks. Okay. So, she has the baby. Puith appoints six women to watch over both Rhiannon and the baby, but somehow all of them fall asleep on their very first night shift. Really good job. Yeah, really. really good. Fearing they'll be put to death for this blunder, it's obviously possible, the six women come up with a plot to frame the queen. For going to sleep? No, well, I mean, you'll see here. So their very best idea to explain this whole child disappearance thing. Oh, did I say that? No. That's why, because I missed that line. The child disappears. Ah. They'll be put to death for this blunder. (laughs) This makes far more sense. Oh, dear. It's not a good job storytelling either. Just about as bad a job as they did watching the child. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Okay, Okay, to to, uh, clarify, they all fell asleep and the child is missing in the morning. (laughs) Perfect. Well, not perfect. Storytelling-wise, perfect. Within the story, not perfect. I'm glad that, you know, you're here to mention that to me. If mm-hmm. I did this podcast alone, I would have just kept going and no one would have understood the story. Okay. So, yeah. They're they're scared. They come up with a plot to frame the queen. Okay. Their very best idea is to slaughter a puppy. Why? I don't get this. Okay. They're going to slaughter a puppy. They're going to smear its blood on Rhiannon's face. And they're going to mm-hmm. put its bones next to the bed. Of course. In the morning, the women run screaming into the courtyard, yelling that the queen had eaten the poor baby. Yeah. Everyone just believes this. Poor Rhiannon is sentenced to sit at the gate of the castle to do penance. She was made to tell anyone who approached the horrible story of what she'd supposedly done and then carry the people on her back into the palace. So I'm assuming back then nobody knew, like... Skeleton anatomy. I know a puppy is not close to a baby. Yeah. Maybe a little raccoon would be. Anyways, terrible idea. Meanwhile, in the nearby village of Gwent is Coid, Lord Tiernan is having himself a stakeout. You see, he has a beautiful mare that gives birth to a beautiful foal every year at the end of May. But every year, the foal will be gone by the morning. Mm. So this year... Tiernan is planning on hiding in the stable to see what's going to happen. He hides himself under a pile of hay in the corner and settles into wait. At precisely midnight, a large, clawed arm slowly reaches through the window of the stable and grabs the foal. Leaping to action, Tiernan draws his sword and slices at the arm, which drops the foal and retreats into the darkness. Tiernan jumps out the window to pursue the monster, but alas, it has disappeared. As Tiernan walks back to the stable, he hears a faint crying. The sound grows louder as Tiernan approaches the building, and finally he spots a baby lying on the straw just inside the stable window. Tiernan and his wife raise the baby. They name him Gori Golden Hair, as his hair was as blonde as spun gold. But as the child grows, it becomes apparent he is the son of Puith. He was the 
bidding image, and everyone in the area has clearly heard the story of the king and the lost prince, or murdered prince, of David. Tiernan and his wife travel to David to return the boy to his true parents. A very weary Rhiannon, by now having been punished unfairly for years, greets them at the castle gate, at first not realizing who's standing before her. As she looks at the boy's face, however, the resemblance to his father starts to dawn on her. She joyfully swoops him up into a hug and tearfully renames him Prudery, meaning worry, huh. because of the distress he'd caused his parents. I would have just stuck with my original name at that point. She didn't, well, it doesn't say that she'd ever named him before he went missing. No, no, I'm saying that he should have stood up for himself at that point and just kept his original name. Yes, this small child should have told his parents, look, it's really not my fault that I got kidnapped by some weird monster and some weird ladies killed a puppy and framed you. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be saddled with a name like this the rest of my life. Yet, I, I don't know. It seems appropriate if you would have done that. I really want to like end the story by saying they lived happily ever after, but I hmm. I have no the idea. name like that. I have not no idea possible. what happened. Right? If your name is Worry, your life might be your life might have worry some worries. So. <laughs> I thought we should end today with a story from British legend. Good. These episodes really just wouldn't be complete if we didn't include at least one of the Arthurian tales. So storytellers began passing on the earliest tales of Arthur in the 900s CE through merely oral tradition at this point. Um, the stories might have been based on an actual British leader who won some victories against Germanic invaders in the early 500s, but historians aren't sure about that. And you've all heard of the Round Table, King mm-hmm. Arthur's Round Table. I was wondering why the table being round was so important, like such an important historic detail that has been maintained through history. And I'm sure you know the reason. Yes. So I was hoping you would share with the class. Ah, the reason that the table was round was because Arthur placed importance on having all the knights being equal and being able to effectively be like a mastermind in business terms, being able to solve problems as equals without a single leader or, or a specific leader. But why round then over rectangular? Because rectangular, you have sides. And you could have a head of the table, whereas in the round table, it could all be equals. No part of the table was different than another part. Awesome. You nailed it. So I know everyone's heard stories from the famous quest for the Holy Grail. Um, in its earliest medieval mentions, actually, this special grail was actually a um, mysterious food-producing vessel. It wasn't until later that this special quest item became associated with Christianity mm-hmm. and its supposed use by Jesus at the Last Supper. Of course. Um, in fact, its first written mention in that context is from a romance text from about 1180 CE called Percival, written by Chrétien de Troy. Some French guy. Yeah. So this is a, a kind of cool example where supernatural and pagan themes slowly morph over time into the Christian-themed tales that we know. Um, and the story I'm going to tell you encompasses similar themes of pagan concepts transforming into more Christian ideals. So one of the characters in this story, the Green Knight, is linked to the Green Man, which is a traditional English carving in which a human head is surrounded by foliage. They were a symbol of natural rebirth, as happens in the springtime, and they took a form, the form of a small gargoyle with leaves sprouting from the hair in their face. And you can find carvings such as that 
um, in English churches from around 400 CE. Cool. Tale number three, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We begin our story in Camelot on New Year's Eve. Such a silly place. (laughs) King Arthur, Queen Guinevere, and the Knights of the Round Table are celebrating the season with a joyous feast when they are interrupted by an uninvited guest. A man has arrived to see the knights. This man is strong and handsome and absolutely massive. But that's not the most distinguishing feature he has. This giant man is also green. Like entirely green, though. Is he jolly? No. Mm. I don't think so. So he doesn't eat peas? Well, his clothes are green. Okay. This I know. His skin is green. So so it could be. Could be before he got a job selling peas. It's all making sense now. I'm glad you've cracked the code. He has uh, long green hair. He has a big green beard. He is riding a green horse that has a green saddle. And his weaponry is green. A green axe and a branch of holly, which I guess is naturally just green. Sure. He doesn't wear armor, though. He insists all the knights are too weak to face him anyways, so what's the point of armor, really? As I sort of mentioned earlier, it's thought that this green knight represents the pagan religions that were common in Britain before the arrival of Christianity. So that's pretty cool, I think, with symbolism there. So, yeah, several knights want to fight him. He's an interloper. Why did he just show up in the middle of their feast? Being all green. He laughs at them. He is a giant. They can't touch him. He insists he's not here to fight. He's come to play a friendly Christmas game. Good. Friendly is a word. He's the Grinch. (laughs) All coming together. Your theories are a little all over the place. I'm just putting together. Green seems to be the only thing that ties your theories together here. That's fine. So, so friendly. Friendly is a word that that this man is using in a way that I am clearly unfamiliar with. Okay. Because this is the game that he proposes. He challenges any of them to strike him once with his axe, on the condition that he gets to return the blow next New Year's Eve. Don't worry, though, right? These are friendly axe blows. So Uh, friendly? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but how is this a game? Like, this isn't like a game to me, right? And, And what is the incentive for the knights to play this game? in which they're going to get chopped by an axe by a giant next year. Well, the Green Knight tells him that his magnificent green axe, his giant green axe, will belong to whoever accepts the deal. Now that the challenge has been issued, one of the Knights of the Round Table is honor-bound to accept it. I do not know why. I'm not sure why. No, thank you. We're trying to have a holiday celebration. Please leave, strange man who wasn't invited here. Isn't a valid option. But I think it has something to do with chivalry. Yeah, probably. Knight's Code, something. When it appears that no other knight will dare accept the challenge, Arthur himself prepares to volunteer, knowing that the ultimate responsibility really lies with him. But just then, 
Sir Gawain, the youngest knight and Arthur's nephew, Mm -hmm. asks for the honor instead. The green man nods at this, bending down and bowing his neck before Gawain, who neatly picks up the axe and beheads him in one stroke. Blood bursts from the wound, but the green knight neither falls nor falters. He merely reaches out, picks up his severed head off the floor, and remounts his green horse and begins to leave. Before he's made it out, though, he stops and turns, holding up his bleeding head. It speaks, reminding Gawain the two must meet again at the green chapel in the woods in one one year's time. He rides away, and Gawain mounts the giant green axe to the wall. They all admire it for a while. Time passes. New Year is again approaching. Gawain rides off with a heavy heart to face what will certainly be his doom. By Christmas Eve, he's made it deep into Wales, and he comes across a castle. He calls upon the lord of the castle, Sir Bertilac, who invites Gawain to stay with him there for Christmas, if he will accept a deal. Each evening that Gawain stays at the castle, Sir Bertilac will meet him, and they will exchange whatever they gained that day. Gawain agrees to this arrangement. Yep. While Gawain is staying at their castle, Sir Bertilac spends the days hunting, and Lady Bertilac spends the days trying to seduce Gawain. Yep. Uh, no reason given. She just does. He's good looking. He rebuffs all of her advances, save for a few kisses. For fear of offending her, I guess? That's what it says. Yeah. Offending the lady. As if it would be offending to kiss someone who is trying to come on to you. But okay. On the first night, Bertilac gives Gawain the deer he's killed. And Gawain gives him the one kiss he accepted from the lady. Yes. But he doesn't tell him where it's from. I don't know where he thinks it's from. But the source is very clear that he does not mention this is from the lady. Mm-hmm. On the second night, Bertilac gives him a boar. And Gawain gives him two kisses. Again, not divulging the source. I'm still confused about this. Where, who else lives in this castle? Well, there's probably other ladies or gentlemen. You think knights are allowed to kiss servant ladies or gentlemen? Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) On the third day, after being rejected yet again, Sir Bertilac's lady pleads with Gawain to at least take her sash. This is made from the finest gold and green silks, she tells him. It's charmed, and it'll keep you from physical harm. She also gives him three kisses. That night, Sir Bertilac gives Gawain a fox, and Gawain gives him three kisses, and nothing more. He keeps the sash hidden under his clothing, not mentioning it to his host. Gawain decides now is the time for him to move on in his search for the green chapel, He's been with the Lord and Lady Bertilac for long enough, and he knows his time is drawing near. Asking his gracious host for a guide to help him find his way, he departs. The guide leads Gawain deep into the forest, warning him not to proceed. No one has ever survived a visit to the Green Chapel, my lord, the guide tells Gawain. Sir Gawain is indeed terrified, yet he responds, Even if death is the certain consequence, I cannot bear to think of myself committing such a cowardly act as to not hold my word. In a forest glade, Gawain comes upon a green mound 
emerging from a cave in this mound, looking identical to when he had seen him last, except with his head reattached, Mm -hmm. is the Green Knight. Silently, the giant motions to Gawain to remove his helmet and kneel before him. He raises his mighty axe and brings it down towards Gawain. Anticipating the dreadful blow, Gawain flinches and the axe misses. The Green Knight mocks Gawain, telling him how embarrassed he should be at his cowardice. He flinched. And demanding he holds still this time, or lose all his honor. Gawain promises he won't flinch again, and true to his word, he doesn't. Yet, on the second swing, the giant's axe misses again. Now it's Gawain's turn to complain. Pray, sir, let us finish this. I cannot bear to be waiting here for you to miss again. Take your blow and make it true. The Green Knight again raises his axe. Surely he'll not miss a third time. As his axe comes down, it nicks Gawain's neck, drawing blood, but not doing much damage. Gawain rolls away, puts his helmet back on, proclaiming, I have received your blow, and now I am released from our deal. Indeed, sir, said the giant, you are. Staring at the green man, puzzled, Gawain asks him what the point of all of this was. What's the meaning of your strange challenge, Sir Knight? Well, in a shocking turn of events, the green knight reveals he's actually Lord Bertilac. Mm -hmm. He was transformed into a giant by none other than the sorceress, Morgan Le Fay. Ah, yes. His task was to test Arthur's knights for bravery and honesty. Yep. He had suffered no damage on the first two axe blows, as he had been honest in their bargain for the first two nights. The blow that drew blood was the result of Gawain hiding the green belt and not being forthcoming with his host. Despite this fact, though, the Green Knight named Gawain the truest and bravest knight of them all. Gawain returns to Camelot, and he decides to forever wear the green belt as a reminder of the time that he was tested, his honesty was tested, and he was found wanting. So those stories are pretty fun, I think. Um, I'm especially intrigued by the blending of Norse and Celtic mythologies and Scots myths. Mm-hmm. I do plan in the future on investigating more for myself, and there may be more episodes in the future. Who knows? Thank you for joining us for part three of the mythology of the British Isles. I'm not going to comment on what's coming at you next week, not because it's a cool surprise or anything, mostly because I haven't the foggiest idea what it's going to be about. It's hard to predict. (laughs) Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And thank you for tuning in to Teach Me Something. I hope you learned something new.